Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Claire English, and I'm a host here on the Jewish Studies Channel. My guest today is Mira Sukarov. Mira is Professor of Political Science and University Chair of Teaching Innovation at Carleton University. She is the author of Public Influence, A Guide to Op-Ed Writing and Social Media Engagement, and The International Self, Psychoanalysis and the Search for Israeli-Palestinian Peace. She is also co-author of the volumes Social Justice and Israel-Palestine, Foundational and Contemporary Debates, and Methodology and Emotion in International Relations, Parsing the Passions. I'm speaking with Mira today about her new book, Borders and Belonging, a memoir. It is a work that takes seriously the feminist adage that the personal is political, and vice versa. Through an intimate telling of her life, including the divorce of her parents, her time spent at Jewish summer camps as a child, uh, visits to Israel, her time in graduate school and later as a professional academic working in the fields of political science. Mira uses the work to trace her shifting relationship to Israel, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the meaning of diaspora Jewish identity, and what writing about international relations can look like. Welcome, Mira. Lovely to be here, Claire. Great. So I'd like to start with the traditional first question here at New Books Network and ask if you could tell us a bit about your professional background and how this memoir fits with your previous work. Absolutely. Well, in many ways, the memoir is an answer to that very question is how is an Israel, Palestine, Canadian, Jewish scholar made? Um, But for your listeners, I'll tell you a little bit more. I grew up in a tight-knit Jewish community in two cities in Western Canada, Winnipeg and Vancouver. And by the time I reached university, I knew that I wanted a broader understanding of Israel and its neighbors, a broader understanding than I'd gained at Jewish day school and at a decade of Jewish summer camp. So I majored in Middle East studies. By the time I neared the end of my undergraduate studies, I knew I wanted to do doctoral work. So at that point, it was a matter of choosing a discipline. And given what my goals were at the time, which were no less than bringing peace to the Middle East, I decided that the best discipline for me would be political science. So I went on to do an MA in poli-sci at University of Toronto and then a PhD in government at Georgetown University. And throughout this time, I spent three separate years in Israel in my 20s. This was in the 1990s, one as an overseas student at Hebrew University as an undergrad, another as a pre-doc fellow at Hebrew University as well, and then another one uh, uh, working in the Knesset and uh, doing some research for some other professors back home in Canada. And for the last 20 years, I've been happily employed as a professor of political science here at Carleton University in Ottawa. 
Great. That's great background. Uh, so as we get a little bit into your book, I'd like to touch briefly on the genres of autoethnography and narrative international relations. How did you come across these methodologies and uh, what promise do you think they hold? You're absolutely right that the memoir, though it reads like any memoir, any work in creative nonfiction, that it really relies in an academic sense on autoethnography and uh, the methodology of bringing the self in, in, in direct engagement with the work that we're studying. And I'll tell you how I discovered autoethnography in, in my field, in international relations. It was more than a decade ago, I was at a conference at my annual uh, international relations conference known as ISA, International Studies Association. And I wasn't feeling particularly engaged with um, the research in the discipline at that time. And I was, you know, after the dissertation had, after my dissertation had become a book and I was looking for new avenues in my next project, I happened upon a panel in a crowded uh, small section of a ballroom in the hotel at this large conference and it was standing room only and it was packed to the gills and it was panelists scholars many of whom were quite senior and seasoned and they were telling stories about how they had personally engaged with the work whether it was childhood in Pakistan or as an American researcher studying uh, border uh, dynamics between the U.S. and Mexico, and I was smitten. A few years later, I connected with uh, a longtime friend and colleague at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, Oded Levenheim, and he was working on his own book of autoethnography at the time, where he was tracing his daily mountain bike commute from his home in a suburb of Jerusalem known as Mevaseret Sion to his office at Mount Scopus campus of Hebrew University in the Department of International Relations. And we retraced his daily mountain bike route. In our case, we were in a car and on foot. And he showed me the kinds of things, ideas and uh, issues he was grappling with through the landscape, through the history, uh, the politics of the place, and through his own personal engagement with these issues as an Israeli. And I really felt that I too wanted to uh, engage with these kinds of methodologies. And it was really a matter of finding my way in as a diaspora scholar. Um, I couldn't claim to be a regular everyday actor in the conflict, um, like my friend and colleague, Oded Levenheim. So what could be my voice? What could be my claim? How could I describe in many ways what was an outside encounter, but it wasn't fully an outsider encounter, as I trace in the memoir. It was really a story. It's really a story of insider-outsider identities. And I, and I really bring the reader, uh, try to bring the reader into that tension in, in many ways. That's perfect. And, and insider-outsider is something I certainly want to touch on in a little bit. Um, I think as we get started, sort of getting deeper into the book, I'd love to touch on the um, structure of the book as we get going. So the, the book is structured in a nonlinear timeline, uh, and we see you sort of moving back and forth between past and present. So how did you arrive at this structure, and what was that writing process like? I realized, I mean, there's a couple of things. One is that each chapter itself um, has what we could call think of as flashbacks or uh, another way to think of it is simply association. So I'm in, in the present moment of the action that, that is taking place in the chapter and my mind goes to an earlier association of a food or an event and I, and I let the reader in on that. And the reason for doing that 
was very much to show how memory and identity works in that we live our lives chronologically, but we don't experience uh, every moment in a chronological fashion. And in other words, we're often hearkening back to the past in our minds and we're trying to make sense of the present through our various experiences. So that's within each chapter. And then in terms of the overall structure of the book, you're right, I alternated the chapters very uh, deliberately between um, past and present, though the present present doesn't come till the very end when I'm really Mm -hmm. just a few years, um, was just a few years ago. And I'm really trying to show how childhood and the the, the, um, relative powerlessness of childhood and then, then the middle level of power and agency that that happens in adolescence and then increasing amounts of, of agency and maturity that happens with adulthood, how those play against one another. And, um, and a large theme of the book is the question of power and agency through tracing of anxiety and panic through some health scares that I've experienced and that are told in the book. Yeah, great. Another thing we'll, I want to touch on as we, as we move through. Um, the title of your book sort of lays out your central themes um, of borders and belonging. And um, this is a work that traverses the personal and political dimensions of borders and belonging and crosses terrain of family, state, and diaspora. Can you tell us a little bit about how you see these themes working in your text? The first chapter opens with my uh, experience several years ago at a peace march in Tel Aviv. And I'm in the chapter, I'm telling the reader, and I'm really showing, trying to show the reader how I'm experiencing being at the peace march as an act of political engagement. So in a sense, I'm, I'm doing what everyone else around me at the march is doing. I'm engaging very directly. But at the same time, I'm very much aware of my non-citizenship. And I'm not an Israeli citizen, although I'm Jewish and, and I'm not a, a voter, voting member of the Israeli polity, although I speak Hebrew. And so I, I talk about that in, in kind of quite, try to do it in quite sensory detail. So um, that sense of who am I in relation to Israel, while I feel greatly connected, while I'm very knowledgeable in terms of being a so-called expert or, or specialist, academic specialist in the area. I'm not. Um, I, I'm not an official member of that society. I don't live there. I don't um, put my life on the line for that society directly. So it's that insider-outsider idea. And then I realized as I was grappling with that, which is really the primary um, meat and potatoes of my of my discipline and of of my primary autoethnographic methodology of who am I as a Jewish scholar engaging with the politics of the Middle East. I realized that there were a lot of parallels to my own life stemming from my parents' divorce when I was very young. And that's, that happens, that revelation and the, the memory of, of uh, my parents telling me that they were going to be separating, that comes in chapter two. And then really just thinking back and forth to where I belong um, in terms of my own in, uh, nuclear family, in terms of um, summer camp as a sense of home versus a more alienated sense of um, space in the years between summers and those 10 months between summers where my anxiety as a teen flares up much more acutely to um, the question now of what it means to be a scholar and what it means to be a teacher. So there are a lot of, I guess, official borders in in an official sense, as well as boundaries that I'm really trying to explore in the book. 
Mm-hmm. Because I mean, you do you do seem to do quite a lot of border crossing um, in this book, and sort of try to struggle to work out what belonging means. And um, you know, sometimes that seems to be more successful a project. Uh, at least in your earlier accounts of your summer camp experience, your Jewish summer camp experience, there seems to be a lot of moments where you find a you know a real sort of belonging there. Um, of you know, and and but there are other times in which it's more obviously fraught. For example, as you say, when you're moving between um, the households of your parents once they've divorced and dealing with blended family outcomes, as well as in your political commitments as you shift over time. And we constantly see you engaging in kind of processes of negotiating borders and belonging. Uh, and I wonder if you think that as readers and people interested in Israel-Palestine affairs, uh, if we should think of borders and belonging more as processes than as fixed statuses. Absolutely. There is a certain fluidity to these categories. In some ways, they're, in some cases, they're quite fixed, as in your family, who your parents are and um, what what your what your immediate configuration is as a young child, and and we'd have very little choice over that. And in other cases, we we select our political communities. I mean, we don't necessarily select our citizenships, although in some cases we do. But we certainly select the kinds of imagined communities we d- decide to belong to, the kinds of ethnic um, home diaspora homeland connections we choose to nurture, and we also choose as scholars. And this is something I also addressed in the book is we choose which scholarly communities we want to belong to, whether they're field communities, discipline communities, um, uh, topic communities, and whether they're political communities. So one thing I talk about in the book is trying to negotiate my way through different um, ideational communities within uh, the academic world, which uh, groups of scholars do I feel most comfortable with? Which groups of scholars do I seek approval from? And that finally, on the final level, that echoes within my Jewish community in the uh, in the cities in which I live and trying to find a place to both feel like I belong while also seeking to challenge um, norms and conventions to uh, accord with the kinds of sense of social justice that I want to see in the world. So it's, it's, never, um, it's never totally comfortable, though that may be uh, a situation I, I bring on myself because maybe I, I, I see comfort as complacency. And it, it's a challenge that way. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's dig into social justice a little more. This is such, this is a real consistent through line um, in in this memoir, it seems to be a through line in your life, something you've been seeking after, you know, since your early sort of formation. Um, how do you experience it as consistent in that way, in the way that I'm describing it, or how has it shifted, or or is it just a matter of of your having kind of deepened your understanding around the issues, and that creates the the sort of appearance of shift. In what is in what is I mean, I would say, fundamentally a principle. I would say that there has been a consistent desire on my part ever since I was a young child to want to um, partly appear as chasing social justice and partly doing it. And um, for example, when I was young and older, relatives around me would tell ethnic jokes at the time. Ethnic jokes were very popular right. in the 
seventies and eighties. And, and I would say prejudice is wrong and we shouldn't be doing this. And this isn't, this isn't okay. And I mean, I guess we could also um, try to uh, explore why I felt the need to do that or what made me do that, be more, be more, um, have a tendency to do that more than some other kid. And why, when I was in seventh grade, did I arrive at a new school and when introducing ourselves say, I don't believe in prejudice or bigotry, what, you know, we can try to, and I try to do that sometimes. I try to mine what went into all those things um, without being too pedantic for the reader, because I I don't want to ever take myself for granted. I think we need to examine who we are and why we are the way we are to the best of our ability. So I think social justice has been something I've sought out. And sometimes it's, it's been an awkward endeavor. So the question is also, um, is how does one engage in moving the world to a direction that one believes it should be in while persuading those who would disagree. And it's a real art and a real craft. And so for many years, I devoted my um, professional activities to op-ed writing and social media engagement. And I even wrote a book, as you mentioned, on how to do that, show how to model for other scholars, how to publicly engage and how to write persuasively in a way that will bring others on board and not simply um, engage in our own echo chambers. So I'm very interested in in that kind of persuasive dialogue. But in this memoir, I try not to do that too much. Try not to try not to write too prescriptively because um, the point of this particular work is to bring the reader along with my emotional journey and not necessarily have them agree with, with me all, all along the way. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's that um, openness to your reader that gives a certain richness and depth to the text Actually, yeah. Um, I wanted to double back to um, this question of insider-outsider status. Uh, You know, it's something that at times when you're in Israel, you seem to really revel in it. I mean, I think you actually make the statement at one point, you know, I revel in my insider-outsider status. But then, you know, as you sort of mentioned before with this example of attending the rally in Israel and not being sure, uh, you know, if you should be participating because of your non-citizen status, uh, you know, so we see this this greater kind of ambiguity uh, around this identity. Um, ultimately, despite your early sort of, you know, real love of Israel and, uh, and continued love of Israel, you choose not to make Aliyah as an adult. Um, and I'm wondering how this sense of diaspora identity shifted over time and what joys and tensions has this identity brought to your experience of Israel and its conflicts? I certainly maintain uh, some degree of regret and, and certainly a high degree of ambivalence around where I did choose to make my life as an adult And so part of me feels a sense of loss that I didn't cast my lot with Israel. And I do feel a real great sense of connection when I'm there. On the other hand, I'm very uh, dismayed by the political direction that Israel's moving. And if I came of age at a time of great hope, um, the Oslo Agreement was signed um, when I was just starting my final year of undergrad. And I write about that in the book where we gathered around with friends around the, the television of the only uh, friend of ours who owned a TV at the time in downtown Montreal at McGill because it wasn't cool to own a TV in the sense of elation and hope and optimism we felt. Since then, of course, um, things have become that much 
more hopeless in the region. But as partly things have become more hopeless and my own sense of the politics and the dynamics and the history has has shifted, uh, I it's hard for me to imagine in some senses um, committing to being part of that society officially. So it's, there's a real sense of ambivalence. Um, but I do still, but, but then when we think about the rise of social media and global media and uh, cultural offerings being so much more open to anyone, I do feel quite connected, as connected as I want to be in certain ways to the, to the area with uh, friends and family, uh, Israeli television, music, um, social networking, etc. Mm. Because you, you grew up speaking Hebrew and you continue to speak Hebrew to your own children. Mm-hmm. And that is an exciting challenge that I decided to take on for myself and also a frustrating one because their vocabulary is by definition limited to my vocabulary, which isn't perfect. <laughs> and my Hebrew isn't perfect because I, I, it's not a mother tongue for me. And so I don't have that sense of inputs constantly coming in and enriching my, um, my knowledge, but it, but I do, I do, I do do my best. And I want, and you know, part of wanting to speak Hebrew to my kids is wanting to give them access and wanting to give them the tools of engagement should they decide to engage one day at a serious level in, in what's going on in Israel-Palestine. Because uh, surely they, we, we all know that as Jews in uh, North America, they're getting constant, either subtle or overt inputs as to what their connection to Israel should be. And if anything, I, I don't want it to remain at that uncritical level. I want them to be able to engage with all the tools at their disposal, if and when they should choose to do that over time. Mm, that's a great gift. Um, so I wanted to pick up now on the theme of um, gender. So you spend a significant amount of time on the role of gender and sexuality in your own life throughout this memoir. Uh, mostly through a series of infatuations and more serious romantic engagements through girlhood and into adult life. Um, why was this important to you in the context of this memoir? And um, what does this material help excavate uh, about the role of desire and attachment, gender and feminism as essential lenses for thinking both the political and the, and, um, the international of politics? I think you've really um, gotten to it through that the concept of desire and so when we think about diaspora attachment to Israel in many ways it's about longing and it's about longing I mean even at the end of the the Passover Seder if we think of it more in a liturgical or theological sense the idea of next year in Jerusalem and the idea of wanting to be somewhere that one isn't currently physically geographically spiritually perhaps and there was that sense uh, of wanting to be for, as I mentioned, those 10 months between summers at summer camp, wanting to be at summer camp, wanting to be at that idyllic, in that idyllic utopian environment that we had created for ourselves as youth at, at Hebrew summer camp. And so the, a real, I think, useful vehicle for thinking about longing and um, placement is in many some, some examples in the book was through unrequited love or requited love that then went in, in, um, in more challenging directions afterwards. So, and so I, I spend the least amount of time on talking about my most important uh, romantic relationship, which is with my husband, We've been married over 20 years. And I don't spend a lot of time on that in the book because what I'm really trying to spend time on is those, as you said, those younger relationships that are, that do feel more fraught, more challenging and, um, 
that really encapsulate this idea of longing. Yeah, I mean, it's a really important theme. What, you know, longing and the role that that plays in our political engagements and the role that that plays, you know, I'm sure, especially in sort of protracted conflict um, around the world. Um, how do you... How do you see the possibilities for a theme like longing and desire and attachment to be more fully integrated into um, political science thinking, international relations thinking? I think it has to do with using the idea and the emotion of longing as a mirror, as a way of reflecting our own selves and identities back to us. So when... um, we were well speaking for myself when I was in these various relationships or either searching for the relationship, chasing the relationship or engaging in the relationship, the few, I mean, there's not so many, um, um, my early writing mentor, uh, in an early draft said, this reads like a childhood, like your teenage diary. I said, well, it's cause I used my teenage diary for some bit. So I definitely, you know, smoothed it out and edited out some of the bits so that it wasn't just relationship after relationship, but the ones that I do end up focusing on in the book, I think there's a really important aspect there that I'm looking for myself in the other. And this can be a very powerful and uh, generative dynamic that we, we engage. If we look into the face of the other, we we engage in really important interpersonal growth and really seeing the other and connecting and getting out of our selfishness and our narcissism. But in, in other ways, it can be very um, simply uh, ego, ego. Um, I'm just trying to think it can be, it can reveal to us the uh, neediness and insecurities we each have in terms of understanding who we are in the world. And that's, I think the dynamic I'm trying to, uh, talk about in these interpersonal moments. And then if you scale that up to the diaspora Israel relationship, in many ways, Mm -hmm. Israel, and I talk about this in the book, Israel is the, is the, is the, the haven and the, the locus, loc, the, um, Israel is the haven for many of the dynamics that were, um, that are, consuming us within the diaspora. Who are we? How do we define ourselves within communities? And so we play out those fights often within diaspora communities on the subject of Israel and Israel-Palestine. So scaling up the idea of using the other in an interpersonal romantic sense to understand our individual self, scaling up from there to thinking about how uh, Jewish communities in the diaspora have often used Israel and the politics around Israel to understand themselves. Mm, mm. Yeah. Um, you know, another sort of, um, I think, productive angle for me about, you know, reading this this memoir and the, the sort of tales of relationships and things was that there's a real sort of undercurrent of masculinities. And I wanted to ask you, you know, just quite simply, you know, do you think scholars should attend more closely to the kinds of masculinities that inform and circulate within particular political conflicts? Um, Do you think they're doing enough of that kind of work? And and what does that kind of work look like? Absolutely. And I think you're right to say that it isn't only women's studies anymore that we now think of it in terms of studying gender generally, and that for every... uh, feminist intervention, there's 
needs to be an awareness within feminist scholarship of uh, how all genders are constructed, and that includes very much masculinity. And I do try to address that in certain elements, particularly with um, Israeli military and my engagement mm-hmm. in certain um, micro moments, particularly in my time as a young woman on spending time on a kibbutz in Israel, is thinking about my engagement with Israeli militarism and how that uh, affected me as a, as a woman, I would say, as a young woman as well. And so masculinity is certainly uh, an important part of it. And there's uh, also a couple of important scenes in the book that I trace where I am really discussing that directly with, and my, and my, with my friend and colleague Oded Levenheim and my, and my, some of my assumptions about Israeli masculinity are directly being challenged by our encounter. And I, and I get to that in the book as well. Yeah, I think it's fascinating and, um, and, uh, provocative. Yeah. Um, I wanted to pass now to another theme that I was so thrilled to see this theme coming out, and that is the theme of disability. Uh, and it begins a, in your really early childhood with the way that um, disabled, uh, especially um, you know, bodies that, with amputations, are provoking these anxieties that you have around separation of your parents in early childhood. Um, and then the sort of fallout of these anxieties. And it develops into your adult panic over um, these food allergies that you develop. And then in the middle there, we also find uh, your skin cancer diagnosis and all of its um, attendant anxieties. So I was wondering what work is disability and mental health doing in this text? And how does this relate to the larger project of engaging politics of Israel-Palestine? Mm-hmm. So I think it really gets back to this idea of power, sense of power and powerlessness and agency. And as a young person, as a three or four year old, as I was dealing with the fallout of my parents' divorce, you're right, I did develop a very acute phobia of uh, disabled people, particularly ones who were missing limbs, but but not only. And uh, then there's a segment in the book where I uh, describe the apparent sources of that phobia through a visit to a child psychiatrist and a, and a drawing that I'd made in the psychiatrist's office and her interpretation of that drawing to my parents and what it all meant vis-a-vis my experience of, of my family being uh, so-called sort of dismembered itself. Mm-hmm. And then you're right that later on, I do have two significant health scares. One is a near fatal encounter with skin cancer um, that I caught immediately upon my return from living in Israel for the first of three years. And the other is a anaphylactic allergy to seafood that I developed in my 40s and which then itself uh, created a uh, cascade of panic. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting to think, I mean, it's, I, I struggle a bit with whether to think of all of that as disability. And I think of disability as a bit binary, mm-hmm. as a term. Mm-hmm. And of course, mm-hmm. you are very engaged in disability studies in your own research. For me, um, I think of myself generally as um, possessing uh, able-bodied privilege, mm-hmm. though I have had these moments of debilitating anxiety. I mean, when I say debilitating, they haven't affected my, let's say, my performance in the world or my ability to um, be productive or have an income, but they've, but they've had a cost in terms of my own sense of comfort. I mean, it's very unpleasant to have, to, to have panic and anxiety. So 
Um, and so, I, yeah, I, I'm, I, I don't know if I would consider that disability per se, but certainly feeling vulnerable. And I think that's really where it, where it comes down is the sense of vulnerability. And sometimes vulnerability is a very useful emotion in terms of feeling or a useful stance. And I use it a lot in a very uh, conscious way in my teaching is opening myself up to learning, opening myself up to making mistakes, opening myself up to sharing my subjectivity and my emotions. And I encourage my students to do that as well when they're writing and using their subjectivity and their personal experience to make a point. So that's one kind of vulnerability. The other kind of vulnerability is literally feeling like you might die in, in any second. Of course, we all will die at some point. And, so, and that's a very unpleasant and I would say unproductive um, form of vulnerability that I've had to to tackle and uh, really get it uh, under control. And, and currently, it it, it is. Mm-hmm. They'll um, ask me again when I get the vaccine on Thursday how I feel okay. um, in terms of one more little you know thing to scare me in terms of whether all all my body will manage it. Um, okay. Right, right. Well, mm-hmm. I, I have to say, I still envy you. I'm, I'm still waiting to be on the list for that. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, we'll hope, be hoping that that goes smoothly for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to pick up on vulnerability, uh, you know, in um, a little bit of a, a larger lens. But I'll lead into it by asking, um, you know, labor Zionism, and you start out very much in this sort of labor Zionist camp. Um, and as you point out in, the, in your book, it has long been informed and certainly was initially informed by this sort of image of um, the muscle Jew. And, uh, you know, you note these kind of early connections that you had to figures like Max Nordau, and you tell of, you know, sort of sleeping in the library practically in summer camp and poring over these texts. Um, and you found great promise in this idea of Jewish bodily regeneration through work on the land. And um, I wanted to ask whether, as a scholar, whether you see the academic sort of practice of disability studies, um, if there's a way for it to be brought into international relations uh, in a way that destabilizes the ableism of many, uh, many, many um, national nationalist figures and figurations. Hmm. I could certainly see that being a productive line of inquiry. It's not something I've engaged with directly, but certainly when you think about and bring up Max Nordau, whose work on Jewry of Muscle, as you said, did have a great impact on me and how whose work I felt I was literally embodying and acting out in mm-hmm. uh, my time on a kibbutz working sometimes in the field, sometimes even just in the dining hall or, or with the, the children or folding laundry, doing physical labor, whether it was more of the domestic variety or, as I said, oh, also in the metal shop painting beams and really enjoying that feeling of using my body for labor Zionist ends. And I think that that would be an exciting line of inquiry and I would welcome uh, the opportunity to think about it more. And it's really not something I have thought about, but now that you mention it, uh, it's really the first time I connected uh, just today in this very interview. I hadn't made the connection between the jury of muscle via Zionist philosopher Max Nordau and my early uh, phobia as a child of bodies that were um, disfigured. So this uh, conversation is really making me think of some exciting new avenues to explore for the sequel. Great, great. Um, <laughs> 
glad to be of help. Uh, okay, well, so so maybe you haven't um, thought quite in this in this um, lens, as it were. Um, but you know, you spoke about vulnerability and and how you try to integrate that into your scholarly and teaching practice, uh, which I, I you know I think is so um, important and no doubt rewarding um, for your students. Uh, and and a, and a welcome opportunity for your students, I would imagine. Um, but what could thinking bodily vulnerability and difference lend to a rethinking of national identity? As so, for example, around themes like militarism and and um, the the sort of stark othering that can play out in certain forms of Israeli politics and and Palestinian politics, for that matter. Well, perhaps the most obvious way is thinking about uh, militarism as a metaphor for physical prowess and as a way of wanting to demonstrate physical prowess and physical ability. And if one thought about the possibility of other kinds of uh, solutions in the Middle East, so for example, instead of necessarily uh, two states, each one with uh, a dominant ethnic group or an even almost an exclusive ethnic group exercising sovereignty in the traditional international relations sense of statehood. It may be instead of that, we think about each group exercising cultural uh, flourishing. So in ways mm-hmm. that don't necessarily involve uh, the body on the world stage, the way states, if we think of state a state, a sovereign state as a, as an ideal body, body sense. And so if we think about that, we can think about new kinds of political configurations in Israel, Palestine, confederations, binational states, a state, a a, a political community where two sub communities flourish culturally and linguistically vis-a-vis one another in a single sovereign entity, uh, what's sometimes called the one state solution. And we can also think about Uh, the limits of military force as ways of solving the conflict. And that certainly has been, for much of Israeli history, that's been the default option. Everything from what Israeli officials have called mowing the lawn of of intermittent attacks on Hamas in Gaza and on other um, adversaries in the region to more uh, diplomatic breakthroughs and negotiations and talking. Now, again, negotiations and talking isn't entirely simple either, given the dynamics right now between Israelis and Palestinians and um, anti-normalization moves afoot. So we could get into that too. But I think in short, thinking about uh, the limits of militarism and the limits of military solutions on one hand, and in thinking about new possible sovereign configurations on another. Great. Sounds fantastic. Um, So I I wanted to um, shift away now to a third theme. Um, In many ways, your your memoir circles this theme of home and the difficulty of finding a personal and political home. Um, What does home mean to you? And did writing this book sort of teach you anything or shift your understanding of home in its various manifestations? What I mostly discovered as I was working through the various periods of my life in this book is that home really is about a a full sense of comfort. And often one thinks about oneself as surrounded by home. And now more and more as I proceed through middle age and think 
and am in this period of time in the pandemic where uh, the my physical surroundings are the same day in day out. There's no travel. There's no um, daily, even no daily change from home to the workplace. That I'm really thinking more and more now about home as an internal uh, space as well, and uh, everything from mental chatter to mindfulness, like let's say anxiety and panic on one end of the unsettled spectrum to mm-hmm. everyday monkey mind as the as mindfulness um, scholars, thinkers have taught us on the other. So really a sense of being settled in one's surroundings and being settled in, in inside one's mind. I mean, that's a lifelong struggle for most of us. And that's the new project I'm working on for myself these days. Mm, yeah, no, I can certainly relate to a lot of that being being in much the same situation as we all are. Uh, far too much time at home, wondering mm. what home finally means. Mm. Um, so you bookend your text with scenes of tensions arising from your political engagement. For example, um, various frictions you run into within the Jewish institutional landscape in Canada. Uh, what do you make of the state, the current state of political discourse? Um, do you feel optimistic or pessimistic about current trends in public dialogue and exchange? Well, the I mean, this isn't a Canadian-specific issue, but the Trump mm-hmm. era, I mean, certainly uh, bled into Canadian life too. And I think now that that has receded. I hope, and I'm I'm optimistic that we'll have a little less polarized, less to, lower degree of polarized discourse. But uh, I'm not entirely um, convinced of that. The other thing is looking at social media, where more and more of us are congregating, especially these days. Um, looking at social media as both a challenge in terms of uh, and a and a, a barrier to um, open a barrier to productive discourse in some ways because we find our echo chambers we fight a lot we're not necessarily respectful of one another's humanity um, but on the other hand it is a place where people are coming together and many others are learning and watching from the the dialogues or the debates that are going on between others and so there is a a sense of um, I would say fragmented community but I think we are learning from one another and the the current debates on social we talked about social justice earlier the current debates on social justice in terms of race and the racial uh, awakening in the US and to some extent Canada and indigenous reconciliation these are all important mm-hmm. moments that i think more more of us are coming to terms with more and more of us who have white privilege or settler privilege in a settler colonial context we're coming to terms with that and i think that that might help spill over to how we think about uh, so-called conflicts in foreign lands and how we think about oppression and how we think about power elsewhere. Mm. Because, you know, social media as well is something that we see you engaging in in, the, in your memoir. You write that into your text. And, and obviously, that's something you've thought sort of deeply about and um, are engaged with. But uh, I think for some of us, you know, myself, I'm not deeply engaged in social media. And you know, sometimes, uh, especially with, you know, Twitter and, and especially during the tr- Trump era, I've been kind of wondering how people stick with it. So, I mean, do you, do you feel that it continues, you do feel that it continues to be a worthwhile tool? And do you think there are areas or, or modes of social media that are more productive than others? 
there are platforms that I prefer over others, and mm. I don't want this to be an advertisement for particular uh, <laughs> platforms or particular billionaires, but I would say ones that uh, enable longer posts and more words uh, tend to be a bit more productive, although Twitter now is allowing, uh, encouraging and allowing threaded, so-called threaded tweets, so you no longer have to restrict yourself to 140 or 280 characters, as you did in the beginning. Um, but where places where we can really write and share nuance and rather than having to be pithy and rather than wanting a single tweet to be uh, liked and shared, we can engage more uh, modestly and humbly in, in longer, more dialogic encounters. And I, I do see that happening in certain pockets. Great. Okay. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really interested. You have written what I found, uh, you know, a very striking text that I, I, you know, I think I mentioned that to you in one of our conversations prior to this interview, um, you know, was really useful to me as, a, you know, an academic muddling through my PhD and sort of thinking about, you know, what my academic voice was. And it was a really interesting model of what a kind of academic writing could be. Um and I wonder what the reception has been amongst your fellow academics, so your colleagues or your your broader um, um, network. How how has the work been received? Mm -hmm. I think many of them have told me that it's brave and courageous to be so forthcoming. And I think it really ultimately comes down to uh, the kind of um, public persona we each want to put out in the world. And I'm not as um, worried about keeping my cards close to my chest or keeping um, private things private. I don't mind a um, more of a, a melding between my private and public um, realms. And so I think the, so um, I think people are responding to it in ways that perhaps mirror their own proclivities and how they and how they like to engage. But I do what whatever what however they are responding to it. I do hope that it helps open up space for other scholars, and particularly junior scholars, who who have to be concerned about how their work is received for for tenure, for jobs, mm -hmm. for promotion. I'm already a full professor, and I don't have to worry about those things as much. I want. Uh, I do hope that this kind of work opens up space for other kinds of genre writing in in scholarship and other kinds of um, creative outputs. Yeah, yeah, me too. I think I think that would really irrigate and enrich uh, academic exchange. Um, as we sort of begin to close out, what what did you have a sort of audience in mind? Was it academic? Was it broader than academic? Who who would who do you see reading this book? I really, you know, it's funny because uh, in marketing questionnaires, the publisher always wants to know who you see as reading right. the book, where, who should it be marketed to? And authors often love to say everybody because everybody reads books. And so we have to be very, I have to be very careful to be, um, to, to not be too broad about it. But I could really see it appealing to many people because it's really a story of human of human struggle and we're all human and we all struggle. So, I mean, I, I really... Um, I, but, but in specifically, I saw it appealing to a few distinct communities. One was fellow scholars, especially in the social sciences and humanities. A second 
was anyone who has been intensely engaged, whether professionally or personally, with Israel and Israel-Palestine. Third was uh, Jewish communities in, in general. And fourth is anyone who um, struggles sort of with their place in the world and with um, their own sense of self. Great. Well, I certainly hope all those readers find their way to this text. Um, so I wish you much luck with it moving forward. Uh, so I, I've taken a lot of your time, and I really appreciate uh, the time that you've given to this. Uh, so as a final question, I'd love to know what projects are upcoming. Um, is there anything in the pipeline? Yes, I'm happy to share. I have two book projects I'm working on right now. One is a book on Jewish politics, trying to uh, give readers a sense of the breadth and depth of the ways that Jews in uh, as individuals and in groups mobilize and face, encounter, and engage with uh, the most pressing issues of our day from climate change to race and identity to school board politics. So that's one book project. And the other really stems quite directly from this memoir, but will be in, in a different mode. There will be some personal elements in it, but it will be more of a prescriptive book on really laying out my vision for how to talk about Zionism in a more productive way. Mm -hmm. And that's going to look at different ways of thinking about Zionism, both as a political and historical political program, of course, as collective Jewish attachment, and as a current system of governance that has major effects on people's lives every day. Great. Well, I'm sure we all really look forward to um, to reading your future work. And I certainly encourage people to take the time and pick up a copy of um, Borders and Belonging. It was a wonderful text, and I really appreciate you coming on to talk with us today about it. So thank you, Mira Sukarov. And thank you very much, Claire, for this rich conversation that gave me additional uh, avenues and insights to think about for future works. My pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, well, bye for now, everyone. Thank you for listening. Uh, take care. We hope to hear from you again soon. Bye.